Well, uh, do turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're continuing in our series in Romans chapter 12, but we're having a second reading in addition this evening from 1 Peter chapter 3, reading from verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, reading from verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity in mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, do please turn in your Bibles once more to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, reading from verse 14. That's page 948 of the church Bibles, if you're using one of those, 948. Romans 12, reading from verse 14 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good This is the word of the Lord. Well, it would be helpful if you could turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. 
As we come to Luke and consider verses 16 to 18, let's pray before we do so. Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would speak to us. Make clear your word to us that we might leave from this place knowing how we are to live for you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. John Stott, um, the popular Christian writer, in the last book that he wrote entitled The Radical Disciple, argued that Paul in Romans 12 is arguing for something he called radical discipleship, a radical non-conformity to the surrounding culture. What is called for, Stott argues, is for the Christian church to develop a Christian counterculture that engages without compromise with the world. Now, when we hear this sort of thing, I think the difficulty is often in what we think radical discipleship is. For those of us who have spent any time in a church youth group, you may have heard, particularly if you are of my vintage, phrases like, are you sold out for Jesus? Or, are you on fire for Jesus? Or you might have seen, if you ever get anywhere near a Christian bookshop, a plethora of books with the word radical in the title. It's almost like a marketing man's dream, the word radical. It sells. Radical can mean so much. And it often seems to mean in popular Christian culture, at least in my experience, varying degrees of rather extreme behavior, maybe outlandish behavior. But if we think that Romans 12 is an example of radical discipleship, what we find in Romans 12 is not extreme behavior. But in a sense, it's very ordinary behavior. It's day-to-day behavior. But what makes this behavior radical discipleship is that it is discipleship that goes to the root, as Stott argues. It goes down deep. This is the thorough outworking of minds being renewed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as these seemingly ordinary ways of living are slowly adopted, they will build a community that is truly countercultural. I mean, these things that are mentioned in Romans 12 do seem very ordinary. For example, in verse 9, let love be genuine. Hold fast to what is good. These are fairly straightforward, fairly ordinary things. But as these things are piled up, as they are connected together, as they are outworked in the church family, they create a community that lives differently to the world round about it. These simple and often seemingly straightforward commands are the building blocks of what the church, the community that is transformed by by renewed minds, is to be like. This is the radical, deep-down vision of how we are to live. And as we come to these next three verses in Romans 12, as we've been working through, we see, again, what are very ordinary commands, yet they are commands that go deep, 
and what it means to live as a Christian community in the world. And as we look at these verses, we'll look at them under two headings. Firstly, in verse 16, how are you thinking towards one another? How are you thinking towards one another? Now, how we think matters. I suppose we've all heard people say that, maybe particularly educators of one form or another. They've, they've spoke to us about thinking being important. But it is really true. It's not just something that they say to get you to read more books or to pay attention in class. Thinking is important because it affects real-life relationships in the church. And this is what we see in verse 16 of chapter 12. Now, I am generally a fan of the English Standard Version that we use here at Grace Church Larbor, but this will be the very rare occasion, the incredibly rare occasion, that I'm going to say that the ESV could be a bit more helpful in verse 16. And the reason that it is not as helpful as it maybe could be is that it fails to make clear that there is a verb used twice and a noun used once that tie up this verse together And they are all focused on this idea of thinking. So if you were to translate verse 16 in a a much more sort of wooden and literal fashion, you might say something like this. Thinking the same thing towards one another. Not thinking highly of oneself, but associating with the lowly. You must not be wise thinking in your own sight. Let me say that again just to hear it again, thinking the same thing towards one another, not thinking highly of oneself, but associating with the lowly. You must not be wise thinking in your own sight. It's a bit clunky, clunky, isn't it? But hopefully you can hear the connections, this connection of thinking through the whole verse. Sadly, the ESV sort of misses this a bit, as do some other translations. Some do include it. But if we see this connection in verse 16 of thinking, we're greatly helped as we seek to understand what Paul is getting at. And the first thing we see in verse 16 is Paul's plea for unity. In the ESV, we read that it's living in harmony with one another, but we've already heard that it's a better translation, might be thinking the same thing towards one another. And this is sort of used, this word is used in Philippians 2, verse 2 and 2, verse 5, where the ESV maybe more helpfully translates it as mind, having the same mind. And the point that Paul seems to be making is that unity is a matter of how we think towards one another. Unity isn't about ethnicity, unity isn't about us all being from the same social background. It's not about class or culture, but rather it's about how we think towards one another. And that means that unity for the Christian church, which is what the one another is focused on, is something that requires active mental engagement. We won't find harmony in the local church if we fail to actively engage with how we're thinking about one another. This is for us all to do. We must have the same mind towards one another. But what sort of thinking, though, brings this unity? 
We are to have the same thinking, the same mind toward one another, but what sort of mind is that? What sort of thinking? Well, we see that in the rest of verse 16, and the key idea to grasp here is that unity comes in the church when Christians clothe themselves in humility, not arrogance or pride. Unity comes in the church when Christians clothe themselves in humility, and this humility comes from humble, not arrogant thinking. In the second sentence of verse 16, we have in a more literal reading, not thinking highly of oneself, but associating with the lowly. In this first sentence, Paul sees, um, we see Paul state that his readers are not to be those who think highly of themselves. And how easy is that to hear and say? But how hard is it to do to not think highly of oneself? I wonder if in the church this is far more rife than we would care to admit. How easy it for us it is for us when we think about other churches, for example. We might say, well, we hold to the Bible, but that church over there, a bit wishy-washy. We take theology seriously, don't you know? Where, you know, they've barely got to the ABCs. How tragic such an attitude would be how self-aggrandizing, how arrogant. How much would that put off non-Christians who might come amongst us? How much, how would such an attitude help a church that we're talking about to grow? Would they listen to us if we spoke about them like that? Will they listen to such arrogant people? And of course, it also assumes that we're doing pretty well ourselves, doesn't it? which obviously may well not be the case. Or how about thinking of ourselves in Grace Church Larbert as we think about how we relate to others? Maybe, and I'm not going to name names, but maybe, maybe some of us are secret snobs. I don't know. We think we're above talking to certain sorts of people because, you know, they're not my sort of folk. I see them at church on a Sunday, but you know, they don't do the sort of job I do. They don't have the educational background that I have. They don't come from my sort of part of town. I'll be polite, but I don't really want to spend much time with them. Maybe we think they're beneath us in some way or another. Or maybe, for example, you might think highly of yourself because you never miss a service. Maybe you're the sort of person who thinks of yourself as a twicer, twice in a Sunday every Sunday, never miss a service. You might think highly of yourself because you never miss your connect group. You might think highly of yourself for always going to the prayer meeting. You might think highly of yourself because of you're a long-standing member of the church. You're not one of these Johnny-come-latelys. You might think highly of yourself because of how you serve in the church or how you have served in the past and how you've done wonderful things for the church family. We could go on, but hopefully you get the picture. Thinking highly of yourself really has no place in the Christian church. Not least of all, because if we do think highly of ourselves in many of these different ways, 
we tend to want to associate with the folk who are like us, or so we perceive to be like us. Other people that we think highly of, we only socialize with those who we think are, you know, the big hitters, the folk that serve just as well as I do, you know, the folk that always come to the evening service, the folk that always make the prayer meeting. Those are my people, those folk who only come to one service, who rarely make their connect group. You know, they're not my sort of people. They're, they're nice and all, but they're not truly committed, are they? We don't really want to speak with them. But the problem with all this is that it flies in the face of the, the principle of grace, doesn't it? If we think highly of ourselves and only associate with those who we also think highly of, then, then we send the message, don't we, to, in our church family that it's, it's all about what you do. It's all about how impressive you are. It fails to take account of the reality that we are not members of this church or of any church on merit. Well, that's not a shock to you. You are not a member of this church on merit. Well, not your own. But you are a member of this church. You are a Christian person. You trust in Christ because of grace. And if we are to be a church family, a community shaped by grace, then then thinking highly of ourselves and thinking, therefore, that we should only associate with people similar to ourselves, whether we do that intentionally or unintentionally, should really find no place in the church. Instead, what are we to do? Well, we see this in the second half of the sentence. We are to associate with the lowly. In other words, we are to be happy to spend time with the less than impressive. The folk who maybe, in our opinion, don't dress appropriately for church, who are hard work, who are difficult. Christopher Asher, a commentator, puts it like this. We are to look for the difficult people, the demanding people, the troubled and broken people, the people who may be draining and from whom we get back little. What change that would make what change that might make to us as a church family? And what sort of a witness might that be to folk who would come in amongst us? That we are not the sort of community that works on the basis of the world, but rather as a community that is shaped by grace, by kindness, that calls us out of ourselves to serve one another. This idea is um, emphasized again in verse 16. Never be wise in your own sight. You must not be wise thinking in your own sight. In other, in other words, as if you're a reader of the NIV, I think it says, don't be conceited. So Paul couldn't be clearer, could he? Thinking highly of ourselves or thinking ourselves to be wise is not how the Christian community is to be. Rather, we're to be those who, who, who happily associate with the difficult the disadvantaged, the poor, the folk who struggle in our church, who find it difficult. We are not, as one writer suggests, to give such folk a body swerve when it comes to tea and coffee after the service. 
instead just talking to our friends. Rather, no, we should try and speak to those people. I'm sure each of us has done that at one time or another, but maybe we should try to stop that. If we're to be a church ruled by grace, then this is how we need to live. If we want to have unity as a fellowship, then we must think like this. We must not be proud or arrogant, but we must be humble in our thinking. And if this is how we're to think towards one another in the church, how then are we to respond to the world, to those not in the church? That takes us to our second heading in verses 17 to 18. How are you responding to the world? How are you responding to the world? Well, how we respond to the world as Christian people has already been touched on in Romans 12. We see this in Romans 12, verse 14, where Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. But again, in verse 17 and 18, Paul now returns to this theme. And we can see that this outward-facing attitude is what is in view when he uses the words all at the end of verse 17 and the verse 18. And in the Greek, what we have there is it's referring to all mankind. So I think it's probably, this is a, an outward-facing thing. This is how we relate to the world. And the people he's thinking about are not those then in the church and are more likely opposing the church. They are those who persecute you, verse 14, who bring, verse 17, evil upon you. The sort of people who, who mock you at every opportunity. The sort of people who call you all the names under the sun because you're a Christian who believes what the Bible says. Paul expects the world to be harsh and unwelcoming to the Christian, and so it is. We might get along fine with folk in our workplaces, in our golf clubs, in our schools. But when we mention Jesus, when we speak of his gospel, when we point to the great need that they have for a savior, then attitudes change, don't they? People clam up, they draw back. You no longer get that email to come for drinks after work on a Friday. You're no longer invited out with your mates at the weekend. You're maybe excluded from something. They won't want to talk to us. They might want nothing to do with us. They, they don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to hear from us. They don't want to spend time with us. Well, how are we to respond then? Well, we see in verses 17 to 18 that there's one negative command and two positive commands. Firstly, then, the negative command, repay no one evil for evil. As with um, what we've looked at in verse 16, this is an, is an easier statement to make, isn't it, than to do. But this is the radical way of thinking and responding that is to characterize us as the Christian community, as the church. For, for as we, if we look at the world, this is something that the world never does. If a country is bombed, they will bomb back. If a celebrity is insulted on Twitter, or maybe a president is insulted on Twitter, 
They will insult straight back. Evil will be repaid for evil. That's the way of the world. But that's not how the church is to behave, is it? Of course, that doesn't mean that the the church can't defend itself. If someone tries to bomb your church or shoot your family going into church, I think we can defend ourselves. But we mustn't repay evil for evil. So, for example, if an Islamist terrorist blows up a church or murders a, a Christian, then Christians have no right to blow up the local mosque. If we lived in a totalitarian state where the police decided that they didn't like the building that we just built and decided, well, get the bulldozers out, boys, knock it down, which happens in China, I'm told, we can't then decide, right, well, I don't like the police. I'm going to go and attack the police station. If we are reviled in the harshest terms in public, if we are in a public debate with somebody and they they call us all the names under the sun, if they employ the most underhand tactics in debating with us, if they, if they misrepresent us, then we must not return like for like. We are not to repay evil for evil. And of course, that is hard. It is not easy. But this is the life that we're called to in Christ, isn't it? And that's the way Christ lived. In 1 Peter 2, verse 23, Peter says of Jesus that, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As disciples of of Christ, we are to follow him and live like him. So we don't repay evil for evil. What do we then do instead? Well, that takes us to our two positive commands in verse 17 and 18. Firstly, We are to give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, when you think of that phrase, it seems a funny thing to say. Maybe you're thinking it's funny for me to say that. I suppose we think, well, Paul could have said something else, couldn't he? He could have just said, love your enemies. He could have just said that. But why this phrase? It sounds a bit relativistic, doesn't it? The assessment isn't whether it's good in of itself, but it's whether other folk think it's good. Well, what I think we have here is Paul making it clear that how we respond to evil that comes our way mustn't just be good, but be recognized as good by others. There is a sense that our response to evil that comes to us in this life is in fact a witness to the gospel's work in our lives. So this doing what is honorable witnesses to Christ. It proclaims his power, his goodness, his gospel. And it's not easy. We see this in the the phrase, give thought to do. That sort of sounds, doesn't it, that it requires a bit of thinking, a bit of careful thought about how are we going to do this? How are we going to respond in a way that is honorable in the sight of all? It is not easy to respond well to evil thrown at us. But that's what we're called to do as Christian people. We're called to live as our Savior lived and to commend his gospel by our actions and words. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds 
uh, and glorify God. So responding to evil is evidently a hard business, and we see this taken up again in verse 18. Paul wants his readers to try as best they can. It's a sort of another sort of labored phrase, isn't it? As best you can, try hard to do this, to live peaceful lives alongside their, neighbor, their neighbors who, and those who revile and do evil to them. They are to live peaceably with all. We must therefore then be those who, who seek peace with others as best we can. Paul is realistic and he sees that we may not be at peace with some people, for they will hate us and wish to do us wrong. They will, they will wish to persecute us, as is evident in this passage. But as far as we are concerned, as far as we are able, we are to live peaceful lives towards others. So I think that means then that we, we shouldn't be antagonistic, should we? We shouldn't stir up trouble. We shouldn't seek to cause division with our neighbor if we don't have to. Now, of course, division may come. People may not want to live peaceably with us, as can be seen in many places in the world today, not least in Indonesia, where we heard about these attacks on the churches. But, but Paul wants his readers and us as well to do our very best to live peaceably with others. As we speak and as we live alongside non-Christian people, we mustn't seek to be antagonistic towards them. We mustn't be unkind or unloving. We must seek to live peacefully with them. And that will probably require a bit of mental commitment. We will have to work hard at this. We wouldn't want to go looking for fights with people who live next door to us, but who live radically different lives than the life that a Christian is to live. We're not necessarily to go looking to pick a fight with them. We are to seek to live peaceably with them. We don't necessarily affirm what they say and believe, but we should be civil. We should be peaceable with them instead of being antagonistic, rude, unkind, unloving. We are to be those who live peaceably with all. As we look at these verses, we see again, don't we, that radical Christian discipleship is in many ways ordinary. It is about the ordinary aspects of life, of living with other Christian people and living in the world. It's how we live together. But it's equally hard, isn't it? What Paul calls us to do in these verses is not easy. But this is what we are called to do in Christ, to mirror his life and to proclaim his gospel by the lives we lead together and the way we treat those who would do us evil. All these actions speak of a people who have had their minds renewed by God, who have been transformed by grace, let us seek to live this way that we might proclaim Christ and his wonderful work to a watching world. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we confess our inadequacy as we consider these commands. We recognize how we have often not done these things, how we have been haughty, how we have thought of ourselves as wise, how we have been unwilling to associate with the lowly, where we have been sorely tempted and have done evil to those who have done evil to us. Help us to be those who do what is honorable in the sight of all, that we, that we might be as best we can those who live peaceably with all, that we might, in our words and our actions, those who proclaim the power of the gospel through living together as a transformed community under Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.